11 is where we are. Luke chapter 11. It's marvelous. It's a great text. It'll be helpful to us. It's about prayer. Luke chapter 11 is where we are. Full house, full house. Wow, it's nice to see everybody. Wow, some people haven't seen in a while. Great to see you. Wow, wow, wow. Nice. So here's what happens. Luke chapter 11. It it happened. We don't know what the it is. It happened while Jesus was doing what? Yeah, listen, think. I mean, here is Son of God, the God-man in the practice of private communion with the Father. Was this unusual for him? No, no, no. It's like a pattern. He's praying. While he was praying in a certain place. What place? Does your Bible tell you? No, I don't know. I don't know. You know, Luke at this point is is sort of telling us it's not important. Don't be distracted by the place. It's the function uh, of prayer that should be the focus of our attention. So while the Lord was was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, ooh, no one would dare interrupt him. You know, things have to wait. When you're in private communion with the Father, come on, put things put things away. You know, let it go. Finish. Finish your, your business. So so after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, implying they were there, see, watching, observing. Praying with him? I don't know. Watching him pray? I don't know. But while he was praying, something struck at least one of his disciples who said, Lord, teach us to pray. John did. John taught his disciples, you teach us to pray. What motivated them to ask for instruction in prayer was to see the power of prayer in the Lord's life. They saw what he did on a daily basis. They, they heard him teach like no one ever had. They saw the things he did. He performed miracles. And they saw him in regular private communion with the Father. And they made the right connection between the two. They saw that everything about him was a function of his private... Everything publicly about him was a function of his private time with the Father. And they said, me too, me too, me too. Teach us, teach us, teach us. And so the Lord does. And what he's about to teach them is a pattern of prayer Oftentimes referred to as the, yeah, yes, yeah, the Lord's Prayer. Some people say it actually should be called the Disciples' Prayer because though it is instruction from the Lord, it's instruction about how the disciples should be about the business of prayer. It doesn't matter. Lord's Prayer, Disciples' Prayer, whatever you want to call it. You've heard of it. It's been written about earlier on. Would you like to venture a guess as to what other biblical writer records the pattern of prayer known as the Lord's Prayer? Anyone know? Here, here it's Luke, but there's somebody else. Uh, oh, oh I, I mean in the New Testament, a, a gospel writer. It's Matthew. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, you'll get, you'll get the Lord's Prayer that you're going to get here. However, you'll say, whoa, it's different. Wow, you're going to say. Matthew includes things in his uh, exposition of the Lord's Prayer that Luke does not. What's up? What's up? I'll tell you what's up. Um, Luke's presentation is much more abbreviated than Matthew's. You'll see. Certain things are left out. Why? 
Because the Lord saw the subject of prayer to be of such import, he taught on it on many different occasions and didn't say exactly the same thing. For instance, we have three classes here. We had an 8 o'clock class, this one, and one to follow. Uh, we're teaching on the same subject today, this text, and yet my words are not exactly the same in each of the classes. Well, why do you repeat it three times? It's important. So the Lord taught on prayer on different occasions, different places, using different manner of expression because the topic is so important. So Luke's, you'll see, Luke's rendition is slightly different. And so um, he said to them, the Lord responded, he said to them, when you pray, whenever you're about the business of praying, whenever you're going to do this, and then he's going to give them a prayer, a pattern of prayer. For every occasion, if you're an older Christian and need a little incentive to pray, and if you're new in the faith, this will be really helpful to you because sometimes, you know, around here and in other churches, we talk a lot about praying, but maybe you're someone who says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how to do it. What do I, what do I say to God? Well, I think this will help you then. That's a good question. This will help you. So the Lord said, when you pray, say, what's the first word? See, this is so significant. When you pray, start off addressing the one to whom you're praying to as father. This is huge. It's a family term, don't you see? It's not a business term. It's not a military term. CEO, president, next-door neighbor, boss, father. You know what the Lord is teaching? He's teaching, don't even be thinking about praying if you're not connected by faith to the Father. He doesn't teach unsaved people to pray. Why? Doesn't do any good. (laughs) He's teaching the disciples, you, me, these folks, how to pray. Pray this way, in light of your new relationship. Father. You know what the starting point of all of our praying should be? Him. Oftentimes, it's us, me, you. We rush quickly with our petition, a job, a health concern, a relationship. There's a place for it. Hang in there. Just wait. But make the starting point, Father, why? Do you know when you start remembering who you're praying to, oftentimes what you're praying about doesn't loom as large? What you're about to pray about is about to overwhelm you until you remember the Most High God who happens to be your Father. And then this big thing that is to be dealt with by you uh, is brought in its right perspective because you're in the presence of a big God who happens to be your Father. So a good thing to start out doing is to praise the Father. Think about his goodness. Think about his greatness. Think about his sovereignty, his holiness. Think about the fact that he's all wise, that he knows you by name, that he's told you of your future. It's grand and it's glorious, that he's forgiven the sins of your past. Think about his attributes. Think about how he's the beginning and the end, knows all things, is in all places, has all power. Think about it. Father, Father, Father. That's how you start. The starting point is Father. 
You know what's significant about this? In this case, the underlying word for father is Abba. Not always in the New Testament is the word father based on Abba, but it is here. You see, the Lord, that's an Aramaic word. Aramaic is a language in the day spoken by the Lord Jesus, much like Hebrew. He went back and forth between the two. The Aramaic word Abba is translated here, father. It's significant. The Lord Jesus referred to the father, his father as Abba. And the Lord Jesus is saying, so can you. It's huge. It's a term of endearment. It accentuates the notion of the family tie. It's daddy, it's papa. Jewish people then and now, children, refer to their dads as Abba. You can hear this in Israel in crowds all the time. You'll hear little ones, Abba, Abba, typical. Daddy, father, papa. Jewish children refer to their dads as Abba, but Jewish adults do not refer to God as Abba. But the Jewish Messiah said, you can, you can, you can refer to him with the same level of intimacy with which I know him and refer to him. You can use this term of intimacy, the same one I do, because I am the bridge between you and he. I am his only begotten son, but you are adopted sons and daughters. Start out remembering who you're talking to. He's your father. So that is a very, very significant, significant term. Then the first petition is, hallowed be your name. First, first request. Interesting. The Lord Jesus says, pray this way. Start out with the Father. Remember who you're talking to. Uh, and then the first thing you should ask him. First thing you should ask him is that his name be hallowed. Isn't this interesting? For God's name to be hallowed means to be treated with respect in the world. Oh God, make it to be that humankind will stop snubbing you. Make it to be that men and women will not talk to you as if you're their equal, their co-pilot, the big guy upstairs. Make it to be that men and women will cease to blaspheme your name, but instead will honor and worship it. Hallowed be your name. It's the petition. Do you pray that? Don't answer. Do I? I want to more. I just found out we ought to. Haven't gotten to personal petitions yet, have they? See, that's how I start. Oh, God, um, you know, uh, I I got a flat tire. Give me a good deal on a new tire. I mean, I don't know. It's okay. You bring everything to the Father. Don't misunderstand. But there's other stuff at stake here. First of all, remember the dynamic between the two of you. Second, remember God's agenda before you get to yours. God's agenda. He must be glorified on earth because I mean, you don't want people depending on you, do you? You can't be dependent on. You're just frail and weak like me. You want God to be glorified so that people will lean on him. That's his agenda. So the first petition is, hallowed, hallowed be your name. And then it says, second petition, your kingdom come. That's the second thing the Lord Jesus said we are to pray. Pray that God's name be hallowed on earth now knowing it won't be until his kingdom comes. That's what it is. 
The first petition is a prayer for something now. Oh God, may your name be shown more respect today. The second thing implies it will not be shown respect by all people until the inauguration of the kingdom of God. But wait, I thought the kingdom of God came upon us when Jesus came. It did. But it has not been fully consummated yet. So here's the situation. We are now in the kingdom, but the kingdom is not yet fully here. (laughs) The Lord Jesus came the first time. Kingdom begins. The Lord Jesus comes the second time. Kingdom is brought to its full consummation. So, this prayer, hallowed be your name, is something to pray now that folks would recognize themselves to be the creature, he to be the creator. But we ought to know all that which is crooked now will not be straightened out until then. So we pray. We pray Maranatha. That's the same kind of an idea. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. It's part of the disciples' prayer. Can you see how these things can elevate you quickly from the throes of life which are upon you right now? It could be a a medical diagnosis, something. Please, you have every right to be affected by it. But just to help you, start out focusing on your Father and start thinking about how important it is for people to respect him here on earth. You want your dad to be shown respect, don't you? And then say, oh God, the best is yet to come. Come quickly, usher in your kingdom. Thy kingdom come when all earthly kings will be done. (laughs) When the kingdom of God on earth. Lord Jesus coming again, seated on the throne in Jerusalem. A literal earthly reign of Christ Jesus during which time... Animals in the animal kingdom in opposition to one another will be at peace with one another. Military weaponry will be turned into agricultural implementation. There'll be peace on earth, the likes of which the United Nations cannot even think of. But the Prince of Peace will. Yes, ma'am. Oh, please. Miss Marjorie, you are so right. Uh, Miss Marjorie asked the question, uh, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, aren't we essentially asking the same thing? And yes, ma'am, I think we are. Come, Prince of Peace. It's not political peace, the likes of which the world's powers are trying to affect in foolish ways. It's when the Prince of Peace, don't you see, when his name is hallowed and when his kingdom comes. And we as disciples, let me tell you something. One of the marks of regeneration, I see you, Charlie. One of the marks of regeneration is a hopeful expectation of the coming kingdom of Messiah. I don't want to hurt you, but if you don't have that, we need to talk. Because one of the marks of regeneration is you know the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. And you're yearning for the not yet to come. Thank you, Charlie. Go ahead. Yes.
Yeah, yeah. Well, now remember, this is prior to the resurrection and ascension uh, of of the Lord Jesus. Um, I think God is not holding us to technicalities. The Godhead, the Trinity, is something we cannot fully comprehend. I love what you said in quoting uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. It was wonderful, Charlie. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, moved by the Holy Spirit. So there are times, I don't know that I'm right, I'm just trying to tell you, sometimes I'm praying Almighty God and Father, and sometimes I'm praying Lord Jesus, and, um, you know, I don't know if I'm technically correct or not, uh, uh, I don't think you have to worry about it. <laughs> I don't think you have to worry about it. Chuck? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think Chuck is is right. I mean, he's the person of the Trinity who who made visible, who's the point of connection, and so on. All right, good, good. That's a good good question and a better answer, even better answer for a man wearing a pink shirt. <laughs> brother, my brother, so right there, right there, uh, brother. So. so uh, your kingdom come. Uh, you know. Future orientation, future orientation, but, but, but you must not think for one minute that your father wants you to neglect looking to him of, f- f- with regard to your present needs. He's, he's perfectly balanced father. He wants to remind us, number one, of his agenda. His name must be hallowed on earth. Pray for it. His kingdom will come. Look for it. Um, and that's very high and lofty. Now down to earth. Look at the next petition. Give us this day our daily bread. That's where you can pray to your dad. That's where you ask him for things. That's where you express your needs. Give us what I need today. Give us what is essential. What are the essential requirements for me to make it through the day? Father, please be my supply. See? That's what it is. This is not a prayer for luxury, is it? I mean, the Father can give bonuses, and he does. But this is a prayer by the disciple to a loving Father um, for, for the necessities of the day. And the beauty of it is just praying it expresses the realization uh, that he is to depend, be dependent on. <laughs> You're not going to make it alone. So it doesn't say give us our weekly bread or monthly supply or, you know, give me a once a year annual like truckload of stuff. Because then we might only pray uh, to God weekly or monthly or annually. Yes, brother. That is well said. That is exactly right. Bread there, bread for us. You know, that that was literal. Who knows what it is? And this bread means food, but also the stuff of life. What do you need? What do you need emotionally? What do you need relationally, financially? It's every, the bread, the, the nourishment for life, whatever it is. It's surely food as with manna, but it's other things as well. Daily bread. 
expressing dependence on the Father. Why? He wants to be dependent on. Why? Because he's dependable. What? Oh, you see, we don't know that. And he wants to demonstrate it. So he wants us to see the connection between the petition and the provision. He doesn't need to hear from us to know what we need. When we make the petition and he delivers the goods, then we say, my father took care of me. And then you grow in your capacity to know that he's your father and you can trust him. So give us this day our daily bread. And then it says, and forgive us our sins. But wait. Well, first of all, before I... Let me mention this. I, I, I mentioned to you Matthew has an account. Matthew's account says, forgive us our trespasses or debts. But Luke says, forgive us our sins. So let me mention this. Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish people. Jews had a common metaphor for sin. It was called debt. Because they knew their sin against the holy God meant they owed him something. Debt. But Luke is writing primarily to Gentiles who would be probably unfamiliar with that metaphor. Therefore, he uses the literal word sins, not the metaphor. So he says, forgive us. The Lord says, pray this way, forgive us our sins. But wait a second. I thought the Lord Jesus already forgave our sins when we accepted him personal savior i thought our sins are forgiven yet it says we ought to petition him to do this very thing forgive us our sins so what does it mean let me illustrate can you imagine yourself in two different locales rooms one room is in a courthouse it's a courtroom you're there convicted on trial you're before the judge You're going to make your case. He's going to render a verdict. It's not fun. It's pretty stiff. You're nervous as could be. You know nothing about the judge. You don't know if he's going to weigh in for or again you. That's one situation. Now imagine yourself in another. It's a home. A family is gathered around a fireplace. People are comfortably seated on couches and chairs, some on cushions on the floor. The father of the household is there. You know him. There's a family tie. He's your father. But you're at odds with him for something you've done or said that interfered with the communion between the two of you, the conversation, the quality of the relationship. And it has to be made right. That's what's in view here. You, if you're a Christian, will never be in scenario number one. You're not going to be in that courtroom where Almighty God is yet to render a verdict about you. He already did. Here's the verdict. Case dismissed. Because the Lord Jesus paid the debt you owe. He said, it is finished. It's finished. Case dismissed. You will never meet up with God as your judge in that sense, for he is your Abba Father, your situation, if you're a Christian, is like the home scene. You, I, sometimes sin against our Father, offend his sense of holiness, and create an obstruction 
in our communion. This confession of sin, repentance of it, removes any obstacles between family members. This is different. This is not the forgiveness that obtains our position. We've been adopted by faith in the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, and never shall we be unadopted. This forgiveness restores sweet fellowship with the one who will never let us go. So that's what this is. Forgive us our sins. Now get this. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, some people take statement uh, B to be the condition for A. In order to be forgiven, you have to forgive others. Not true. The basis of your forgiveness is the shed blood of Jesus Christ and your faith in it. That's the basis of your forgiveness. This is not the condition of your forgiveness. This is the evidence of it. If you have been forgiven, you're going to sense a new proneness to forgive. Your experience of having been forgiven is going to incline your heart a little more in the direction of forgiving those who have sinned against you. That's what's going on over here. In other words, if you are someone who refuses to forgive another, I question your salvation. I didn't say you're not saved. I just question it. I'll tell you why. Forgiven ones become forgiving ones. Listen to me. I owe a debt that is huge to Almighty God. And he said, you are forgiven. Let's say one of you owes me a debt. Whatever it is, is much smaller than the debt I owed God. If he forgave me the greater debt, but I refuse to forgive you the lesser debt, have I really been affected by the forgiveness with which he has forgiven me? Can you see what's going on? There is no condition for you being forgiven by Jesus Christ, but that you accept his death in your place, his death on the cross in your place. That's the condition, to accept his inexpressible gift. We cannot add to it because it's full and complete. The evidence of it. You know, someone says, I'm a Christian, I've been forgiven by Jesus Christ, and I hate your guts, and I don't want anything to do with you, and I don't... Come on. Nothing softens a hardened heart like being in the embrace of a holy yet gracious God who says, I have cast all your sins behind my back. It softens you so that your attitude to one who has offended you is entirely different. Now, we don't forgive like the Lord Jesus. Don't misunderstand. It's a process and we struggle with it. But if you're not engaged in the struggle, I question your salvation. This is one of the marks of salvation. Forgiven ones become forgiving ones. If you're not a forgiving one, let me put it this way. I don't think you have been fully gospelized. The gospel is good news. 
You've been forgiven. And good news affects your attitude towards others. Paul? Yeah, that's exactly right, Paul. That's a good point. Paul said God commands us to forgive, but we don't have to like the person we're supposed to forgive. We don't have to have fellowship with them, and he's right. Forgiveness is different than reconciliation. Forgiveness is something you do. You grant forgiveness uh, to another. They don't even have to know about it. Reconciliation is the two of you possibly coming together. That may or may not happen. That's why the Bible says as far as you are able, be at peace with all men. You may not be able to be at peace, but you've got to let someone off your hook. Why? Because God let you off his hook. That's why. That's a good point, Paul. Very good. All righty. Do you ever notice almost every Sunday Paul comes in with like a new body part uh, <laughs> being worked? It's like the bionic whatever. And Shirley, we appreciate your biblical position seated behind him. Thank you so much. I'm not meddling. I'm just talking. You have to forgive me now. But you don't have to like me. You just said so. So look at this. Next element. Lead us not into temptation. The disciple here is invited to pray. Oh, God, I love you, for you have first loved me. But I'm so prone to wander. God, keep me, please, from those people, powers, persuasions I cannot resist and which will undermine my relationship with you. This is the honest admission of the disciple that he's weak, that she's weak. This is the person putting no confidence in the flesh, but saying, oh God, I want to finish well, but I can't unless you help me. This is good. Some temptation, you look straight in the face and you can handle it. It's not excessive. Other, you can't say no to. Uh, I can only speak from a, a male's point of view. Guys, there are certain situations we cannot permit ourselves to be in thinking in that situation, we could say no. Not true. Therefore, guys, we have to draw the line in the sand way before we get to that tipping point. And we have to pray, oh God, don't bring anyone into my life experience. So tempting, I'd be unable to say no. Don't you think the Father will answer that prayer? Come on. So that's a beautiful thing. Wonderful thing to pray. Okay, so here's what happens. There is the pattern of prayer. Now what happens in verses 5 to 13 is that uh, we are offered two stories to bolster up the Lord's teaching on prayer. A story or a parable. So the first one is given in verse 5 and on. It says, suppose one of you has a friend. You go to him at midnight, you say, friend, can you give me three loaves? A friend of mine came to me. I don't have anything to offer him. From inside, he hears the friend says, leave me alone. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know what time it is? The door has been shut. Everyone's sleeping. Are you kidding me? I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though the friend, so-called friend, 
is not going to get up to give him anything just because he's his friend. Because of his persistence, the unfriendly friend will get up and give him what he needs. So what is that supposed to teach us? Be persistent in prayer? Not exactly. It's supposed to teach us this. If even a lazy friend who doesn't want to be inconvenienced by you at your point of need, if even he can be moved to finally respond, how much more your God, who is not bothered by you, there's never an ungodly hour for you to talk to him. You'll never hear from him. Do you know what time it is? That's what's going on. So we persist in prayer not to twist God's arm to give us what we want. We persist in prayer because it's to someone who cares what we have to say. He's not the disinterested friend who only will meet our needs when it's convenient to him. Sometimes you pray and say, what good does it do? I'm not getting what I want. You keep praying. You, 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 you're not wrestling with someone who doesn't care. This is Abba Father. He's not, the, he's not inconvenienced by you. Yeah, but why didn't he give me what I asked for? Because he wants to give you what's best. Now you have to take that up with him. You, you, you say, but I know what's best. No, you don't. Your father knows what's best. Okay, so this is the first parable. Then the second, uh, which continues, uh, in verse, uh, Oh, let's, let's, let's just go to verse 11. Here's a second kind of a story. Suppose one of your, you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He's not going to give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Say a fish and a snake. What in the world? How do you get the, do you know they can be, they can look similar? Paul, is this not true at times? A fish and a certain snake-like things. Couldn't there be, oh, you say no. Oh, so God is wrong. How, I know I asked you, but I was looking for another answer. I'm in the place. I mean, what do you think, Tom? Thank you, Thomas. An eel is a fish. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's good eating too. <laughs> they, they actually could appear to be certain varieties the, the, the same here. Well, here's another one. If he asked, if the son asked the father for an egg, he's hungry. In other words, the kid is hungry. You ask your dad for an egg. He's not going to give him a scorpion. You say, what? How's an egg and a scorpion? There's a thing in the Middle East called an egg scorpion. I'm not lying to you. And when it pulls in its claws and tails and stuff, it could actually, in the Middle East, in the desert, in the wilderness, it could actually look like an egg. That's what's, I'm not making this up. I do make up stuff, but not in this kit. This is, no, no, this is actually true. Cause, cause you, you know, wow, what kind of comparison? No, no, they, they, they could, they, they could actually take on similar appearance. But here's the point. It's an argument by contrast. Here, here's the argument. If the lesser is true, then the greater is true. That's the idea. So, the lesser is this. If an earthly, sinful, biological father has enough of an interest in his child to give the child the basic necessities of life, that's the lesser, here's the greater, how much more your heavenly father who loves you, how much more will he give you good things? So that's what it says, verse 13. If you then, being evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now wait, that got my attention. I thought it should read, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Why does it say the Holy Spirit? Okay, so first of all, you got to get this. Um, God is not the inconvenienced friend. You should be confident when you come to him regularly. He cares about you. He's never inconvenienced. Secondly, God uh, gives good things. He'll never give you a bad... If you ask him for something, he'll never meet your need by giving you something that will hurt you. Never, never, never. In fact... Uh, he will give you the Holy Spirit. Why does it say that? Well, because the greatest gift is the Holy Spirit. The, the best of gifts <laughs> is the Holy Spirit. Why? If you're honest, fundamentally, your needs are spiritual, not material, primarily. Doesn't mean you don't have material needs. We have to have food, clothing, and shelter, and the Father will meet those. But fundamentally, the needs are spiritual. We won't know that unless we have the Holy Spirit in us. So, for instance, you have, you know, folks today uh, who have much of what the world has to offer, say materially, but if they don't have peace on the inside, what good is it? Many, many people are physically well, but if you don't have the, the, uh, the joy of the Lord, what, what in you, what, 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 what what good is just physical well-being, you see? So most of us, we will focus on material things because that's how we are. Money, health, uh, relationships, jobs. These are not illegitimate things to be concerned about. But, but we will only be concerned about those things thinking that when we have them in full, when I'm healthy, when I have a good job, everything will be fine. Not necessarily the evidence it disproves that. There are many people who have all those things and who are miserable wretches. All you've got to do is watch the, uh, some of these Hollywood war shows. And one after another, these guys and all this glamour and stuff like that, they're, they're empty shells. They're lost as a goose. They're, they're empty, 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 exactly. So, so God says, this is to prove to you, if you're asking, he's not going to give you a serpent or something. He's going to give you good things. In fact, he'll give you the best. His nature in you, his mind in you, his value in you, his presence in you. Because our primary need is spiritual. And, and what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control. Self-control the capacity to be restrained in a world that is seemingly without restraint. It's unrestrained. Folks, I watch the presidential uh, debates. Every one. I watch every single one because I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Not really. I want to hear who stands for what. It really bothers me. Such a dignified event how it could be devolved into that which is so undignified. And they turn against each other. It's terrible to me. Sometimes they seem, even they, to lack restraint. And then there are others just unrestrained in their passions. 
unrestrained morality, unrestrained consumption, unrestrained words. <gasps> the things that are said today in the political arena, in schools, in churches, we just people just lose control. I'm one of them. Don't misunderstand. I'm not looking down on anyone. I am that one with human nature. And that's why I'm so grateful for the insertion of a new nature to control mine. God's nature to overwhelm mine little by little, more and more, until we're conformed fully into his image. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that better than having a larger portion of what the world has to offer when in fact it's temporary and our Father wants us to have the best? Charlie? Wow. It does. Uh, and y yes, sir, Wayne. Yes, I can't obviously expand on the political uh, uh, choices which we're free to make, although I'll tell you privately. But, in, but uh, uh, no, it is. Um, I love what uh, Pastor Jeffries at uh, First Baptist Dallas said. He called it a theological cult. Listen, we're not indicting Mormon people whose lifestyles in many cases are exemplary and perhaps... Uh, quite moral and ethical and all the rest. 
he called it, this is, I think with such wisdom, though he came under such fire, a theological cult. Well, how do you say something like that? Anything that is a departure from orthodoxy is a theological cult. Mormonism is a very, very clear departure from orthodox Christian belief. Its Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. Its kingdom to come is not the one we're speaking of here. Its plan of salvation is not the gospel message. It is an attractive cult, which uh, is the reason why folks are offended when you call it a cult. But theologically, it's just as ugly in its departure from truth as is the Jim Jones cult in its ugly behavior years ago. See, where someone wrote a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil, and it could look so attractive, and it does, that we have a hard time seeing it to be evil because it looks so good. And we foolish people, I'm one of them, make many of our decisions on the basis of appearances instead of truth. In fact, we elected the last candidate on the basis of appearances, in my opinion. On the, rather than on the basis of content. Most who voted for him didn't even know what he stood for. No, it's a cult. And I know what you're saying, Wayne, and you're right to be concerned. And we Christians, I know we hate this. We hate being at odds with people. We want to be nice and all the rest. <clears throat> truth comes first. And the truth shall set you free. Not being nice. I don't say we have to be weird and odd and offensive or anything like that. But we have to take a stand on the truth if we really love people who don't know it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. I thought it was going to get a little more pointed. Uh, and questions about the specific candidate, those have to be settled by you personally. But we can weigh in on the theological matters. And that is a, yeah, that is a, uh, it's heterodoxy. It, uh, it's not. Uh, it's a counterfeit of everything in the Bible. Right. Teaches Lucifer to be the Lord's brother. <laughs> yeah. But by the way, the average Mormon doesn't know this. Just like the average Baptist doesn't know what he or she believes either. Yeah. So if you sit with a well-intentioned member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, sometimes you can say, "Wow, I never saw that." Wow, I never. See, uh, by the way, they do not base their teachings on the Bible alone. That's the problem. It's the Bible plus something called doctrines and covenants, the writings of Brigham Young, and so on and so forth. And, of course, the Book of Mormon, which you see on TV advertised as another testament of Jesus Christ. Could I tell you something? There ain't another. So we got the whole picture from eternity past, Genesis, in the beginning, God. And Revelation takes us into eternity future. So why do you need another testament? I don't understand all that. So anyway. Okay. Thank you for your cards and letters. (laughs) Listen to me, folks. Uh, Just when you're on the verge of despair, and I float, we were talking earlier, remember remember to pray for the kingdom of God to come. Uh, When Jesus reigns as king, uh, and he will, on earth, everything crooked will be made straight. Amen. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord.
Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. It's going to be great. Yes, ma'am. Yes. So then they attempt to pull you in to believe that they're believing the same thing. Yes. And we, in our lack of preparation and our lack of studying God's word, we leave ourselves open to more of the false teachings. Well said. We aren't well prepared. I agree with you. Folks, we painstakingly study the Bible. You do. You come here. And we study it in this church. We think it's our only protection from deception. We don't look down on those who've been deceived. We don't want to join them. (laughs) So we need God's truth regularly discussed and pumped in and handled accurately and so on. And you're so right. And we need to do that with our children as well. Folks, let me let me pray for us. Uh, I'll be around if you want to chat before the next class. We have some time. But Lord Jesus, now look what we do. We pause to pray, to think about you, to think about how good you are to us. Every day, your eye upon us. Thank you for loving us first. That has engendered our love back to you. We're so blessed to be rescued brought into the kingdom of God. We don't look down on others. We're sad. We yearn for many more to be adopted through our consistent testimony and you empowering us as gospel sharers. Thank you for the good news by which we have been told we are forgiven as a result of the merits of your sacrifice on the cross and your righteousness. One day, Lord Jesus... You will be acknowledged as Lord of all, and we will rejoice when it happens. Until then, hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. See you next time.